Well, we're closing our series on the women of the Bible today, and we can't do it on Father's Day without having a man in the, in the story. And so uh, today we're going to look at a narrative that many of you have probably heard before. Maybe you've not read it all, or maybe uh, you don't realize exactly how it fits into the whole of Scripture. And so uh, today we're going to look at a story called uh, Ruth. And so it's the eighth book of the Bible. So if you have your Bible, I encourage you to turn there. You've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy and then you got Joshua. Good, that's good. Good job, okay? Joshua, and then you got Judges, and then you got Ruth, okay? And so uh, Ruth is four chapters long, and uh, if you will bear with me, we're going to go through all four chapters today, and we're going to do it in 35 minutes, okay? Uh, And so I'm going to talk very fast, uh, but the point of this is that I need you to see why this this book is in your Bible. And I want you to see the graces of God through all of it. If you don't have a Bible with you today, we encourage you to stop by our resource counter. We'd love to bless you with one as you uh, leave today. Uh, maybe that would be a good Father's Day gift. If, uh, if you do um, not have one, that's okay, though. We'll put it for you up on the screen. So if you've got your Bibles, turn there with me. I'm going to give you kind of a little background real quickly. So uh, Ruth is a, a woman uh, that is from the community or Uh, the people called the Moabites. Now, the Moabites are two of the nation of Israel's greatest adversaries. You have the Ammonites, and then you have the Moabites, which are two uh, big adversaries. And the Moabites, you'll see time and, uh, you know, off and on again that they kind of come up and they oppose Israel, and then there seems to be some years of peace. Uh, Matter of fact, one of the first instances that you're going to see with the Moabites is uh, with King Balak. And Balak goes to a guy named Balaam. And if you uh, have ever read the story of Balaam's donkey in Numbers, uh, Balaam uh, is encouraged by King Balak of Moab to to not bless the people and, and, in a sense, deceive them. And for for three times, he says, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it, not going to do it. And eventually... He gives way and and ultimately is a hand in helping the Moabites come against uh, the Israelites. Then you have also, throughout kind of the heritage and the lineage, you have um, some of the some different idolatry things that happen. In Ezekiel chapter twenty five. Ezekiel the prophet writes uh, about the the Moabites being destroyed by the hands of God, and that ultimately he's going to come up against Mount Seir and Moab. And Moab, the reason why is because they had detestable gods and ultimately uh, they worshiped a god called, uh, god, a god called Chemosh. And uh, they would even do sacrificial things, burnt offerings, and even sacrifice their children to Chemosh. And so they had some detestable things and ultimately uh, were back and forth. Saul defeated uh, the uh, Moabites and his kingship, and then eventually uh, David had some years of peace and, and really a pretty good relationship with them. But it's just back and forth, back and forth through the entire Old Testament. You'll see the Moabites and the Israelites, the Moabites and the Israelites. But the deal is, is this, is that ultimately God finally says, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so you've got this, this community that sits east of the Dead Sea, um, and God says, I'm going to I'm going to remove them because they're detestable in my sight. They have given themselves over to pagan gods. They've not loved me. Uh, they, they ultimately even started off in, in really sin. Matter of fact, they were born from Lot's sin with his daughter, an incestuous relationship when her, his daughter thought you know, Sodom and Gomorrah was going to destroy, be, was destroyed and the whole earth is going to be destroyed. And so she went and ultimately had uh, relations with her dad, and then they had a son named Moab, and he became the father of this nation. And so they've never, ever done what God wanted them to do, and so God says, I'm going to destroy them. 
interesting enough, this woman named Ruth comes from the land of Moab. And so, matter of fact, you're going to see that they go and they find refuge there. And this all happens during the time of the judges. And so, one of the, the last judges is a guy named Jair, J-A-I-R. And th- that probably is the time that it that seems to happen. Although the narrative of Ruth is not written until really King David is probably on the throne. And so, that's when it begins to really circulate. And so, it's written several hundred years after the fact. And so, here it is, this narrative of this woman named Ruth who is going to ultimately go and be a part of this, this nation. And so if you've got the, the Bible open, let's go ahead and turn there, and uh, we'll, we'll dive in to uh, Ruth chapter 1. And here we go. We're going to make it fast, okay? Uh, in the days when the judges ruled there, there was a famine in the land of the men, and a man of uh, Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And so you've got this guy who is in Israel, but Israel has a famine in the land, and here's why. Any time that the Israelites weren't doing what God wanted them to do, they were going to have some challenges. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 12, God said to Abraham, he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to keep you. I'm going to make my face shine upon you. Matter of fact, he says, I'm going to give you some stipulations. If the Israelites live for me, I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you people, and I'm going to give you blessings. However, if you don't live for me, then I'm going to take away the very things that I promised you, which is land, people, and blessings. And so here it is. You're going to see throughout the Old Testament that God does all of those. He says, I'm going to first start, and I'm going to take away your rain, and I'm going to kill your crops, and I'm going to give you pestilent diseases, and I'm going to attack them with locusts and different things. And that's going to be a sign to you that you're not doing what you're supposed to, so you should turn back. The problem is, is that he could take away crops and, and, and things like that, and it didn't matter. And so they continued in their deceitfulness. They continued in their idolatry. They continued to not follow the decrees of the Lord. And so the Lord finally says, you know what? I'm going to scatter you. And so you have the Babylonians come in later, way after this. And then eventually he goes, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to kick you out of the land. And so this is kind of the warning sign, a famine in the land. And so they go, and they find refuge in Moab. And so here it is. They're in Moab. You've got this guy named Elimelech, and he's got his wife and his two sons. And then in verse 2, the name of the man was Elimelech, and his name of his wife was Naomi. The two sons, Malon and Kilion, both, uh, they, they were uh, Epaphrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and then she was left with her two sons. These two sons took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the other one was Ruth. They lived about the, uh, there about ten years, and then both Malon and Kilion, they both died. So then you have this woman, and she's left with her two sons' wives. Then in verse 6, Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return to the country of Moab, from the country of Moab, for she had heard of the fields of Moab, the Lord had visited the people, and they'd given them food. So she is in Moab. Her husband is gone. Her two sons are gone. And now she's left with Orpah and Ruth. This has all happened in a period of about 10 years. And here it is. She hears now that the famine in the land of Israel is over. There's abundance of food. Guess what? I'm going back. And so she looks at these two Moabite women in which she has no bonds with anymore because of the fact that her, her sons are gone as well. And she says, I want to go home. I'm, I'm going home. I'm not, I'm not going to stay here. I, I know there's provision for me back home. And so I'm going to go and I'm going to worship my God. I'm going to be with my people. And I'm, I'm not going to encourage you to have to do that. And so what you're going to see is verse 8, but Naomi then says to her two daughter-in-laws, go and you return to each of your mother's house. And may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. 
So she says, you have been kind and gracious to stay with me, but I'm going home and you should stay and go home. Go home to your father and your mother and, and, and you do not need to stay with me anymore. And then verse 9, the Lord, would, may he grant you to find rest in each of the house of, the, uh, of your husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and they wept. And so they come together and they weep and he goes, I want you to go home. She goes, I want you to go home. Go back and, and be with your family. And so what you're going to see is this, is she's going to urge several times. It's almost like they gather and they cry, and then she goes, go home. And then they cry some more. Like, it's women, right? <laughs> I don't know. So they gather and they cry, they gather and they cry. And like, you just have this in the narrative over and over. Can I get an amen, men? Like, and like, if the husbands were there, they'd be like, what are y'all doing? Like, I mean, sometimes, you know what I'm saying? Like, I just don't understand. Like, what, what's happening here? So they gather, they cry. And then listen, Orpah decides I'm going home. I'm going home. But then you have Ruth, and Ruth gathers with Naomi, and I'm not lying. You can see the narrative. They gather, they cry, (laughs) and she clings to her, and she says, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. And right there, what you have in in Ruth chapter 1 in this narrative, if you have a declaration of a woman who is a Moabite woman who has faith in a Jewish God, Matter of fact, what's interesting is, is in Isaiah 56, God makes provision for all the nations that if you will love me, regardless of where you're from, I will bless you and ultimately allow you to know me. And so what God wants to do for people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of culture, regardless of backgrounds, he wants to ultimately see redemptive purposes happen for all the nations. Now, Moab as a whole, their nation was not going to worship God, and they did not worship God. But Ruth said, I want to worship God. Matter of fact, I want you to see it here in verse 15. And she says, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, don't urge me to leave you or or return uh, from the following of you. I'm not going to do it. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God will be my God. And she makes a declaration of faith there. Now, what's interesting is, is that the declaration of faith there is not any different than a declaration of faith for you and I within the New Testament. And why that, why that is, is this, is that God has always been about the business of saving people through their faith in him. And that hasn't changed. And so oftentimes we think, well, it's got to be through baptism or maybe there's some other external work. No, there's no external measure. Matter of fact, Romans 10, 9 and 10, it's a belief in your heart and a confession with your mouth that you would be saved. And so right here, this Moabite woman, although she has a home among a lot of people that are going to be cursed by God, she makes a declaration to the one true God and she says to to her mother-in-law, Naomi, Naomi, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And I'm going to be a part of your people and I'm going to worship your God. And and you're not going to change my mind. You can leave, but I'm following you. And she clings to her, and she clings to her faith, and she clings to her people, and she most importantly clings to her God. And she makes a declaration of faith that says, God, I'm going to trust in you. Now, here's what's incredible. As you walk through this narrative, think about it. This Moabite woman who's lived among a a pagan people who have seen provision in their lives through a multitude of gods, and they believe that they were provided for by him. A guy like Chemosh, and who many people in their culture were sacrificing kids to. She says, I'm not going to do this, and I want to follow the God of the Bible, the, the God that spoke heaven and earth into being through his son. I want to follow him. 
and I'm going to do it through the means of my father or my mother-in-law. And so she goes. And when Naomi saw how determined she was, she said no more. They said, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go. And so they packed their bags and they head to Israel. And so in, in verse 19, so the two of them, they go until they come to Bethlehem. When they get to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? Hey, I mean, it's been 10 years since any of these people had seen her. And so here, here it is, she's back, and now she's got this Moabite woman. And they go, hey, Naomi, Naomi. And she says, do not call me Naomi, for my name is Mara. And what she means is, is don't call me that, because the Lord, he has, he has made my life bitter. And she's not, she's not knocking on God, but she is, in a sense, in the same place that Job was in his faith. She is in a place where she is bitter and stirred. There's been a lot going on. She's lost her husband, her two sons, and ultimately even saw one of her daughter-in-laws go back to her family and their faith and their people. And so here it is. Within a stretch of a decade, she's had a lot of tumultuous things. She left her land because of a famine. Her family has been wiped out. And she goes, the Lord has made me bitter. And then you've got this bright spot in her life of this woman named Ruth, and which is going to be an incredible blessing to her as the story goes. And so in verse 22 is their return, and they're from the Moabite land. But I want you to see, and maybe even underline this very last part, because it's a, it's a huge important factor here. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And so here it is. Think about it. They had been gone for a decade, most likely a famine in the land of Israel would have maybe lasted seven years. And so let's say there was a famine that lasted that long, and now here they are back. And when they come back, they're there for the barley harvest. And that brings you in to chapter uh, two. And so as you flip over to chapter two, you're going to see this woman named Ruth go out into the field. And what she's going to do is she's going to go and she's going to glean a harvest. Matter of fact, in verse one, you're going to see it. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Hey, let, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him, whose uh, side I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out sail and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Hey, the Lord be with you. Now what's interesting is, is why he said that. So here it is, you've got all of these women, so to say, that are gleaning out in the field. And so here's what it was. In the barley harvest, they would be cutting barley out in the field, and as they cut it, there are servants that are out there gathering for the master that, that owned the parcel of land. And so Boaz has this parcel of land, and he has his hired servants. But what he's done is, as a generous man and a kind man, he's allowed other people named like reapers to come in. And all they're doing is gleaning from the extra. And so if you think about when you cut hay, there's always a little bit that they don't gather, right? There's always a little bit left over. Matter of fact, if you ever come into the Bactyl place, there's several ranchers nearby, they cut hay, and then you got Mark Bactyl. And what he does is he goes and he gleans whatever's left from every property. He'll go right up to their house. Hey, do you mind if I glean the rest of your, your harvest? And he's done that for years. He's like, I just want a little extra hay. And so I'm like, really, Dad? You know? But that's what they're doing. They're gleaning in the harvest. And all they're doing is picking up the extra. And Ruth is one of those people who are gleaning. She's not getting the first pick, but she's satisfied with the leftovers. Matter of fact, as the wagon's pulling off, a little bit will fall off the back, and she can go and she can glean that. That's a part of it. She can get that. 
And so you've got all of these people there. And what's interesting is, is this master named Boaz, he takes time out of his day and he doesn't go to his servants, but he goes to those that are gleaning in the field and he says, may the Lord bless you. How are you today? And it just shows you the kind and compassionate heart that this man has. This man is a man who obviously is wise and most likely due to what he's going to say to Ruth later is probably a man that has much maturity to him. He's not a young man. He's, he, he's probably got some age to him and he obviously has done well for himself. He owns a parcel of land. He's, he's got barley and there's many people coming to glean in the field and he is kind to them. And here's what I want you to hear and say is that oftentimes you and I in our lives, we never take the time to realize how many people could glean from us. How many people could use a little bit of what we have? And you go, I don't have a barley field. No, you may not. But there's a lot of ways that you can bless people. And the problem is, is that we oftentimes are so fast-paced, such in a hurry that we never take time to slow down and look around and say, God, where are you working and who could glean a little bit from me? And you, there's a lot of things that people could glean from. Some of you in here, you, you have great wisdom and insight, and people could just glean from you. Like if they just had a cup of coffee, you could fill their cup, literally, with more than coffee. And they could just glean wisdom from you. And, and if you just slowed down, you could bless people with that. Boaz realized there was much to glean from my field, and you are welcome to have it, and he blessed them. There are many of us in here that you're younger, and, and, but there's things that we can bless people with. We just have to take the time to slow down. And that's what a man of God does. A man of God always takes time to look for kingdom work in the midst of his own work. Think about that for just a second. A kingdom-focused man always looks to bless people in ways in spite of his own work. He didn't stop the job of the barley harvest. He didn't stop working in his field, but he did take time to go over here to a group of people who are gleaning in the field. They're just picking up leftovers. And he says, hey, may the Lord bless you and be with you. Do you see that? That's an incredible picture. And then they answered, may the Lord bless you as well. Now, as he's having this conversation with all those gleaning, then he notices that there's one that he doesn't recognize. And he asked his servant, who is this woman? And they said, well, that's Ruth, the Moabite. And he found that interesting. And matter of fact, verse um, 6, after he said that, you, you have verse 7. Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. She heard him say this, and she said, please don't kick me out. Please don't, please don't make me leave. Think about it. I mean, this is an incredible story of faith. This Moabite woman goes to a land in which she's not liked. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like she goes, she's a huge step of faith to go back with her mother-in-law to a land where her people are despised. They're not welcome. They're not liked. And she goes and she finds herself in the field of a man who's faithful to God. And yet he loves her and encourages her. But once she figures out that she's a Moabite, she goes, please don't kick me out. Please don't get rid of me. And I love his response. You stay here for now, except for a short rest. So you stay here. And then he says, listen, you're welcome to gather grain from here and glean in my fields, get all the barley you need. And the only time that you should leave is if you need rest. You need to go get some water, that's fine. Whatever, you stay here. 
And once she saw the response of this man, I wanted to see what she does. She falls down on her face, verse 10. Bowing down the ground, says to them, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Then Boaz answered her and said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and come to a people that you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given to you by God, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And Boaz goes, Listen, I want you to hear something. Ruth, I have heard about your faith. Listen to me. She is the model of a Proverbs 31 woman. She is the model of people talking about a woman in the city gates. A woman in that culture who did not have a lot of notoriety, obviously she has uh, gained a little bit of notoriety and attention because she's a Moabite living in the land of Israel. But the other part of it is when they began to talk about her worthy approach, that she had great character and resolve. And even in the city gates, they began to mention her name and how worthy she was. And Boaz goes, I know all about you. I know about your faithfulness to your mother-in-law. I know how you've handled all the situations since coming from Moab, how great you have been. And may the Lord bless you, really. And then he says, listen, It is the Lord's provision, and this is what I think is so key. One, you've got a virtuous woman, and then the the other part of it is this. Boaz goes, this isn't my field in the first place. God gave it to me for kingdom purposes, and I am more I am more than willing to bless you with it. And understand that I'm not the one making the provision for you. God is. Do you see what he says? And that, I think, is where the church has missed it. Like somehow we think that we're making provision for people and you do it every now and then. You know, you'll give somebody a $10 here. And you, and, and, but we forget to say, hey, don't forget to see how God has missed you and, or blessed you and, and wants to encourage you. And so we miss it when we, when we bless somebody. And so when they glean from us, understand that they're not gleaning from you alone, but from the very God who's given you something worth gleaning from. And so God wants to bless us so that we bless other people. It is Colossians 2, 6, and 7. So then, just as you receive Christ as Lord, continue to live in him, being rooted and built up, strengthened in faith, as you've been taught, overflowing with thankfulness. You overflow what God has given you. And so here it is, Boaz goes, it is a joy to bless you because you are a blessing. And then you see in verse 13, then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoke kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And then Boaz, in the latter part of that chapter, says, listen, you stay right here. I have instructed my servants. I have instructed everyone in this field to care for you. You need not go to another field. Do not glean from anyone else's fields. You stay here and you will be cared for and I will take care of you. And then you see the latter part of that uh, chapter that she goes home. And it's almost as she goes home and she tells Naomi, Naomi, you will not believe it. Like I came across Boaz and, and his field and, and all his barley. And look at all that he sent me home with. I mean, here we are. Like we're set up for a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, it's like Naomi has the light bulb come on. And she goes, you know what? Boaz is a part of Elimelech's family. And in Israel, we have this incredible provision set up in our culture, and it's called a kinsman redeemer. And it's almost like Naomi begins to have some things flood through her mind, and she's like, you know what? What would it look like if he was our kinsman redeemer? Ruth, what would it look like if he was your provision? Now, a kinsman redeemer would be a man in Israel who would not allow a widower to become destitute. 
And so, for instance, if you had a widower, then oftentimes it could be the man's brother or a man's cousin, etc. that instead of leaving a woman as a widower, they would take them into the family. Sometimes, in some cases, it would just be a provision. In the other case, it would be marrying. In this case, you see that Naomi's pitching it out there, and then all of a sudden, she says, you know what, here's what I think you should do. You should go down to the threshing floor. And in chapter 3, if you flip over to it, you're going to see that they're going to be at the threshing floor. And she says, hey, go down there, and you're going to find Boaz at the threshing floor. And he's going to eat, and he's going to drink, and then eventually, he's going to go to sleep. And when he does, you need to be paying attention. And in verse 4, here's what it says. When he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say, I will do. So Ruth says, okay whatever you tell me. And then what you see is, so she went down to the threshing floor and just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, and when Boaz had eaten and drank and his heart was merry, he went down and he lied down to the heap of grain. And when she came softly and covered his feet and laid down, at midnight, the man was startled. I would say so. (laughs) It is midnight. He has laid his head on the grain. He has eaten and drank and he was merry. And all of a sudden, there is a woman laying at his feet. And so he is startled. He wakes up. And he goes, who are you? I would say that too. And, and it, that's not unusual. I mean, you've seen this woman before, but he's like, what in the world are you doing here? Who are you? And then she says, I am Ruth, your servant. Now spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. And in that moment, what she does is she, in a sense, makes a proposal to, to him. Now in that culture, a kinsman redeemer had to be approached. The kinsman redeemer didn't necessarily look out and say, you know what, I'm going to go and take care of this person. It was an offer that this woman had to make and saying, I am a widower, I need to be cared for, would you be my redeemer? And do you see what, what she does? Is she basically says, will you spread out your wings for me and care for me? And then he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the la- uh, this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after another young man, whether rich or poor. He goes, wow. You could have gone after any man. You, you could have gone after someone that was rich, or I mean, you could have gone after someone that was good looking or someone that was young, but like you came after me. And that right there shows us that he's probably older in age, that he does have great wisdom and intellect, but even moreover, that he seems to be pretty comfortable in his life. Like he's not garnering the attention of anyone. He's not looking for some some move to make. In a sense, she comes and she says, I think I could find refuge in you. And here's what's interesting. Do you know what she was looking for? It wasn't good looks. It wasn't popularity. It wasn't riches. It wasn't notoriety. She was looking for a man who was faithful, who had integrity. Men, that's the Father's Day message. All your wife, all your kids need is not a man who provides what they didn't have or what you didn't have as a kid. What they need is a man who is full of integrity, who is compassionate, who seeks out others, even in their weakness and their lows, even as they're gleaning the extra, even if they're just picking up the breadcrumbs that you go, I'm gonna, we're going to care for this family. We're going to nurture them. We're not going to miss the opportunity to bless them. We're going we're gonna to encourage them. That's the man she looked for. And so that's, that's it. Then look at verse 11. 
And now my daughter, do not fear. He goes, don't fear. And then here's, you can underline this. I will do for you all that you ask for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. You could write right there, Proverbs 31 woman. There's going to be a day as if you're a Proverbs 31 woman that your husband and your children rise up and they call you blessed. But there's also a day when you become a, a Proverbs 31 woman that even in the town center, they talk about you and they have nothing, they have nothing disrespectful to say. All they do is encourage you. Matter of fact, you make a great name for your husband because you are such a special woman. That is, think about it. A, a Moabite woman named Ruth is being talked about in the town center and he goes, and all they say about you are worthy things. That's it. This is a picture of God's grace and love. And then verse 12, and he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is another redeemer besides me. And essentially, he breaks a little bit of bad news to her. He says, look, there's another man in Israel that is the line of Elimelech, your father-in-law, who is a closer descendant than I. And because you've offered a redeemer kinship, I have to remind you that I can do that, and I will do that, but there is one closer than I, and we have to ask him first. And so flip over to chapter 4. Here it is. He goes to the city. He's sitting at the gates, and all of a sudden, the guy who he's looking for walks by. He knew he'd find him there, and he goes, hey, brother, come here. We got some business to talk about. Now, this last chapter 4 probably took place over a period of a year, so it wasn't overnight, but basically he said, you need to sit tight, and you need to know that this is going to be of utmost importance to me, and he goes and he pursues this other guy, and he finds him at the town gate, and listen what he does. He goes, hey, there's a woman named Naomi. I know you've heard of her before. Now, Naomi is Elimelech's uh, wife. Now, he's deceased, and so she's looking to sell a parcel of land. And that parcel of land falls to you first. Because you are closer in the line of Elimelech than I am, you have the right to buy the parcel of land. And so it's going to be a pretty good deal. Do you want to buy the land or do you want me to buy it? And the guy goes, I'll take the land. And I'm sure that, I'm, I'm sure that Boaz is like, I bet you will, you know. Then there's a clause. And I want you to see the clause in verse 5. So he's offered the parcel of land, he's told him about this, and then he goes, but the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite. Hmm, that may change the deal. Because think about it, I mean, you've got an Israelite man, and you're not just buying a parcel of land, but you're going to become a redeemer for what? A Moabite woman. Now, you've grown up not liking the Moabites. That's probably a problem. You're probably not going to go home to mama and say, hey, mama, we're going to take home uh, a parcel of land, and by the way, and we're going to get a Moabite chick too. That, that cool with you? And what do you think mama's going to say? Um, no, we're probably not going to do that one, buddy, okay? And so look at the wisdom he has. He says, well, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. He goes, it, it would, it's not going to be wise for me. So take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then in the, that part of the chapter, Boaz takes off his sandal, hands it to him. He takes off his sandal, hands it some Jewish tradition there. Basically, it's on oath, okay? So they didn't have a pen, a paper, and a contract. They had a bunch of men hold her around. They had some elders, and they go, hey, do you agree with this? Do you agree with this? Yeah, okay. So they shook sandals, Okay. <laughs> And, and then there it is. The deal is done. And then what you see is this, verse 13. So Bo, Bo, Boaz will take Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. 
Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and made his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than, uh, to you than seven sons has given birth to him. And you take a woman named Mara who is bitter in her old age and you give her joy. And Naomi comes filled and here's why. Because Ruth doesn't just get a, a kinsman redeemer in Boaz, but Boaz takes and he spreads his wing far beyond her all the way to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and says, we will care for her too. And Naomi seems to rock this child old in his age, and this child's name is Obed. Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now catch this. A couple of weeks ago, we did a story about a woman named Rahab, a spy from Jericho, or a, a woman who housed the spies from Jericho. Rahab is related to Boaz. You have a lineage of two women that God uses. And so here's what I want you to understand. few things. Number one, God is always in the business of doing things for those who love him. He's always working things out for the good of those who love him. Okay? That's huge. Number two, God desires to be a kinsman redeemer for us. And we don't get a, a, a blanket spread out over us by uh, a kinsman redeemer in terms of a family relationship. We get it in a God family relationship. And we get it through his son, Jesus. Listen, Boaz is the antitype of Jesus Christ. One who spreads out a redeeming love for who? Anyone. What do I mean by anyone? Meaning it can be for men and women, Right? It was for Boaz, and it was for Ruth. Women are a vital part of ministry. Women have a part to play in God's kingdom work. Matter of fact, I'll go as far to say that if it wasn't for women, the American church may be dead. And the reason why is because there's far more men abdicating their responsibility in the faith than there are women, which is why we need more men in this room to be the picture of integrity and faithfulness like a guy like Boaz, that you're looking for opportunities to be the redeeming work of Jesus around you, wherever you work, in the fields that you have harvest, glean the opportunities to bless the gleaners. Bless people. Why? Because you and I are not just saved by the antitype of Boaz and Jesus, but we are also the picture of the redeeming love to the world, which means we can't keep it all in our harvest field. It's got to go further and beyond. And it should go for men and women. And look, it should go for even those that we think are detestable. Why? Because the gospel's not for the Jews alike. It's also for the Moabites. It's also for the Amorites. It's also for those that live in the walls of Jericho. It's also for those that are Philistines. It's also for those that are in, in Rome and that they uh, spit and they rejected it. It's also for thieves that hung on the, the tree uh, next to God at Calvary. Do you realize what the gospel's for? This is a picture to remind you of that. And the biggest deal, too, beyond all of that, is that it just shows you of God's providential care for you in your life. And listen to me. You and I need to know that God cares for you. Think about all the things he orchestrated from a famine of the land to Naomi going to the, the land of Moabite, being there for 10 years. And in that 10 years, God is orchestrating things out that they never could see. But God used that for his glory and for their good. And here's what I want to end with is this, is that you and I as Christians, as believers, or those who are looking, you and I need to quit wishing for things and start praying and seeking God for things. And I'll close with this. Yesterday we were in Tyler, Texas. Uh, it was Kelly's birthday. She's getting old, by the way. And uh, 
It's Father's Day, so I can say that. It's not about her. It was yesterday about her. Uh, And so uh, we were there, and there's this big old fountain, and there's pennies all in it and stuff. And and then Bray's like, oh, my gosh, there's pennies in it. And so we hadn't, you know, taught him about that, I guess. I mean, so he's just seven. There's a lot to learn and glean, right, from his dad. And so he's like, Dad, what is that for? I was like, well, typically they say, Brady, if you take a penny and throw it in, you can make a wish. And so he's like, you got a penny? And I'm like, I got a penny, okay? So I give him a penny, and he's like, so do do dreams come true? I was like, dude, that's a really tough question. Because I don't want to go like, oh, yeah, dude, everything comes true. Like, dreams come true, right? Like, I'm thinking about this. I know it's kind of crazy, but from a biblical standpoint. I'm like, we're talking about heaven in the car, and he's like, hey, man, what do we happen? I mean, so I tell him what happens when when we go to heaven. So he's got a good picture. So he's like, hey, do wishes come true? And I'm like, well, I I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. And so he throws his penny in. I guess he makes his wish because at 10 o'clock last night, I am wrapping up my message, doing some of my notes and stuff, and he comes out of the room, gets on the bed, and he is still awake. And I am like, I am quick to listen. I am slow to speak. But Brady, you are making me angry. It is 10 o'clock, dude. You need to be in bed. He's like, I can't sleep. It's really hot. So I'm like, it is not hot. It's 72 degrees in here. He's like, Dad, I just need to know. I'm like, what? Is my wish going to come true? And I'm like, boy, I don't know if your wish is going to come true, but here's what I do know. We probably need to trust God for the things we desire, and let's pray about them and trust that he'll give us the desires of our heart, which means, Brady, that that he's got to change our heart. But I said, son, the bottom line is this, is that God's doing things all around us that we don't always know and see. And so we need to trust him for that. And, and listen, I promise you that you probably should count on prayer and not on that penny's wish coming true. And I thought, man, what a great word. Like, God, thank you for the story, this illustration. Like, kind of wrap it up. Because look, the gospel's for all of us. Jew and Gentile alike, Scathian, barbarian, slave and free, men and women, all are one in Christ. But he is the purpose in which we should live for. He is the one who makes us worth something. And I pray that we would live for him, that we'd be men and women of character, and that you would bless people. And that they would know who the Lord is. And they would truly taste and see that he is good. Amen? So dads, as you leave, you need to taste and see the Lord is good. we got plenty of things back there to remind you of that. But more than anything, you need to make sure that your children are gleaning much from you. That your co-workers are gleaning much from you. That the people that don't know you, but they hear about you in the city, that they glean much from you. Don't forget that God is working all the time and wants to bless us and keep us and make his face shine upon us. Amen? Let me pray for us. God, we love you and we thank you. I pray that you would take this message and use it for your glory and for our good. Thank you, God, for the story of a kinsman redeemer. And thank you, Lord, for the reminder in Hebrews chapter 9 that Christ Jesus is our high priest. And um, that, God, that he established himself not by human hands, uh, not by... Uh, anything that we've built, but by himself. And we know, God, that we don't enter into the holy places by the means of blood and goats or high priests, but, Lord, 
we have one in Jesus who secured our eternal redemption. And just as Boaz was a redeemer for a woman named Ruth, you are our redeemer and you desire to change our life. And so, God, would you do just that? Thank you, God, for fathers. Thank you, God, for these women in here who are so valuable to the kingdom of God and our church. God, would you bless them all as we leave this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.